Good afternoon and welcome to the 91st of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, I talk about homelessness and the pandemic with Carl Falconer and Don Gilman. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube Live. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, July 27th, 2020, there are 16,330,977 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 15,554,551 on Friday. Of those, 4,262,674 are in the United States. That's up from 4 million. 73,243 reported Friday. There are now in the United States a total of 147,143 deaths reported from COVID-19. That's up from 144,780 reported on Friday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or story of advocacy for COVID-19 sufferers every day, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is, they depended on their parents for everything, then the virus took both. This is an extraordinary story in the Washington Post. It was published July 20th. I'm only going to read the beginning of it. I hope you'll check it out on your own. The author is John Woodrow Cox with Extraordinary Photographs by Salwan Georges. She was tired of wearing black, but the teenager knew she had to, at least for one more day. So after Nadine Ismail swept the floors and arranged the couch pillows just the way her parents liked them, she returned to their bedroom. Behind the door, Nadine, 18, reached up for her mother's favorite sweater, still hanging next to the leather jacket and Levi's jeans her father left there after his last day at work earlier. Across the hall, her sister Nancy, 13, put on the black shirt adorned with a sequin gold star that their mom, Nada Nason, had been given as a teenager in Iraq. In another bedroom, the girl's brother Nash, 20, pulled on black socks, pants, shoes, and a button-down, all gifts from his mother, who did so much of his shopping that he wasn't sure what sizes he wore. Their house was quiet that morning in mid-June, as it seemed to be almost all the time now. Nada wasn't frying omelets in the kitchen next to the Bless Our Home sign, insisting that her two oldest children sit and eat and talk with her. Their dad, Namir Aram, wasn't crooning the made-up song in Chaldean about Nancy that always made her laugh, Babit Baba. He most liked to call her Daddy's Girl. All dressed, Nash walked to the small bedroom his sisters shared. Are you ready? he asked. Ready, Nadine responded. Let's go, said her brother, who hoped that this day would mark the end of the hardest time in their lives and not the start of something harder. News that the novel coronavirus had arrived in Michigan first reached their working-class suburb north of Detroit in early March, but the siblings didn't worry about it because they seldom worried about anything. That's how their mom and dad wanted it. 
The family had come to the United States eight years earlier after escaping Iraq, a country that had grown increasingly dangerous for Chaldean Catholics like them. Nash and Nadine still remembered the sounds of bombs and bullets in Baghdad. In their new home in Sterling Heights, their parents tried to everything they could. Namir worked long hours on the line at an auto parts manufacturer to cover the lease on the Cardinal Red Camaro that his son badly wanted. And Nada never let her daughters cook or do laundry because she said there would always be time to teach them later when they were ready to face life on their own. Now, on a day when none of their three children felt ready, they headed up a road their father traveled each morning before dawn on his way to the plant, toward the mall where their mother bought Nancy the Taylor Swift calendar that hung on her wall, past the restaurant where they all celebrated Nadine's high school graduation last year. At last, the stone arch over the entrance to White Chapel Memorial Park Cemetery came into view. The girls arrived first, stepping out of a car into a clear sky morning, just shy of 70 degrees. They walked onto the grass of a long, narrow section of memorial plaques, searching for number 222 among the oval-shaped markers pressed into the ground. I'm not sure which one, Nancy told her sister. Maybe that one over there, Nadine replied, looking toward a distant section of unearthed dirt. Here it is, Nancy said, pointing. And there before them was not one grave, but two. Nash and Nancy visited their parents, visited their parents' grave on Father's Day. You can continue reading that story in the Washington Post. Okay, I'd like to turn to our conversation for today. I'm really uh, very thrilled and excited to introduce my guests for today, Carl Falconer is a native of South Dakota. He's an eight-year U.S. Army veteran. He holds a bachelor's degree in psychology and a master's degree in public administration from the University of North Florida. Falconer has worked with persons experiencing homelessness and mental illness in the Jacksonville, Florida area since 1994, from street outreach to emergency shelter to housing programs. Most recently, regional director with Lutheran Service Florida Health Systems, which manages behavioral health care for people facing poverty in Northeast and North Central Florida. Since late 2018, he served as president and CEO of the Metro Dallas Homeless Alliance, the federally designated lead agency of Dallas and Collin County's homeless response system. He's already led the system in reversing a multi-year trend of rising homelessness. His D1 plan plots the course to ending homelessness in Dallas. And my second guest is Don Gilman. Don joined the Changing Homelessness Team in 2007 and has served as CEO since 2009. Under Mrs. Gilman's leadership, Changing Homelessness has grown from a single employee into an agency employing more than 33 staff members. This growth has increased both capacity and funding to end homelessness in Northeast Florida. The agency currently has a $6.4 million budget. Approximately $4 million has passed through to subgrantees. The funding provides housing, case management, prevention, and other supportive services to end homelessness. The community had an 80% decrease in veterans' homelessness, 57% decrease in chronic homelessness, and 30% decrease in overall homelessness from 2009 to 2018. Carl and Don, thank you so much for making time to join me on COVID calls today. Thanks for having us. So I'd like to remind everybody you can get your questions in. You can just put them right into the YouTube live chat if you want to. Um, you can also 
reach me directly by email, if you like, at sgk23 at drexel.edu. Sometimes people like to email during the program, and that's fine. Or you can uh, put them up on Twitter and just be sure to tag at US of Disaster. So, Carl and Don, I'd like to start the way I have been starting these and just find out um, where you're calling from and what the COVID-19 situation is looking like there today. Don, could I start with you? Sure. Um, I am calling in from Jacksonville, Florida, which is a city in the far northeast corner of the state. Um, many of you have probably heard that uh, Florida um, is has passed New York um, in the number of COVID cases, and we seem to be on track to close in on California if we're not careful. Um, Northeast Florida is not the epicenter of Florida. That is um, in Southern Florida, uh, primarily in the Miami-Dade area. However, we've been seeing um, greater and greater increases. Um, in uh, May, we were able to partner uh, with several national partners to offer COVID-19 tests for anyone who was in any of our shelters and many of our street homeless people at that point, we had no positive results. Um, in the last four weeks, we've started to have positives in both uh, shelter, um, people who live in shelter and in staff members who work there. So the ground is shifting rapidly where we are. And uh, Scott, I'm in Don, Dallas. Thank you for situating us. Carl, go ahead. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm in Dallas, and uh, in Dallas, as uh, Don mentioned, um, kind of the same type of scenario. Um, COVID for uh, quite a while here has been rapidly increasing throughout the state of Texas. Um, we've seen some pretty rapid increases, and now, at least in Dallas County, it's starting to kind of taper off a little bit. We're thankful of that. I think for the last uh, four out of the five, four out of the five last days that we've had, um, we've been under a thousand new cases. So that's good. Um, finally, after I think 18 days of um, 1,000 or more cases being um, being recorded, um, like Jacksonville, very similar to Jacksonville, we're not the epicenter here in Texas. Really, that's further south. Um, Houston and San Antonio really have been hit very, very hard with COVID-19. Um, we have, from the very beginning, um, we opened up some hotels and our convention center as a, kind of an overflow shelter for anyone to make sure that uh, anyone who is homeless had a place to stay. Um, and during the COVID-19 pandemic. And so um, we've done a pretty good job social distancing there. We haven't had as many cases as we originally had thought that we might. Uh, like Don said, uh, for a long time, we didn't have any cases or really wasn't showing up very much. But now it's, it's a little bit more tenuous, although we're starting to get some other dollars and hopefully are going to be able to move some people into their own housing soon, which we think will help alleviate some of that, um, some of that kind of uh, congestion and population within the emergency shelter. I know that those, I'm in New Jersey, and I know those of us up here in the Northeast, we're just so hopeful that the, uh, the kinds of things we saw here in March and April were, would miss 
Texas and Florida and the other other states. Most of my family lives in in Texas, actually in central Texas. I'm from Dallas originally, um, and so I'm really sorry for what's happening in those in those places right now. And, and thank you for pointing out some of what maybe are some brighter spots. We're looking always looking in this time for you know good news when we can find it. We have so much to discuss today. I want to start by actually just finding a little bit about each of you. And Don will ask you first, like. A little bit of just you know how you got into this into this work. If you can share with us what brought you into wanting to work in this, um, what I think anybody would say from the outside seems like a, um, a job that requires a lot of uh, a wide range of skills, a lot of compassion, and a lot of dedication. How'd you get into it? Uh, completely by accident. Um, so uh, it was like one of the best days. answer. Always the best answer. <laughs> yes. It, uh, you know, back in 2007, I needed a job. I got offered a job there. I, uh, at that time, it was the Emergency Services and Homeless Coalition of Jacksonville, Florida, or Northeast Florida. Um, I had no idea that I would still be here 12, 13 years later. Um, as you mentioned, doing this uh, takes all sorts of different skill sets. Um, a lot of what we do is not actually managing people who work for us, but managing other agencies who have a lot of people who do the work that we're funding or partially funding or encouraging. Um, a lot of it is um, hurting kitties. A lot of it is uh, making sure federal requirements are met. Um, and a lot of it is really trying to figure out how do we move barriers out of the way for clients, for other agencies. Um, so that seems to be something I've been pretty good at over the last 10 years or so. So I've um, stuck around and kept doing it. Carl, accident, accidental uh, for you as well. A little bit of an accident myself as well. Yes. Um, back in, let's see, I guess I started a little bit earlier than Dawn um, back in 19, 94 when I was graduating from uh, graduate or undergraduate school a friend of mine asked me to um, become a to, to join her doing street outreach with uh, uh, for individuals who were homeless and also had severe mental illness um, I got out there and I immediately fell in love with the population with the people with the idea of helping people with the idea of working with people um, and from there, uh, it just kind of ex escalated for me. Um, I started helping one person at a time out on the streets, actually doing street outreach, and then always wanted to find the next level of being able to help more people and more people and more people until finally now I'm, uh, again, the head of our continuum of care here, and we're serving approximately 12,000 people every year trying to get them housed. So. Um, yeah, it was just kind of an escalation there, but I fell in love with it and yeah, it, it was just fantastic, but yeah, kind of accidental a little bit. I, I guess that's kind of the way it works. Usually. Well, Carl, let me, let me stay with you for just to, if we can get a broad sense of things for people like myself who may not know as much about this topic in non-pandemic times, what is the scale of the homelessness issue in the United States? Um, how does it compare to other countries? Is it 
Is it seasonal? How do you measure it? Can you just take us a little bit into some of the broader sense of how, how you get a handle on describing this problem? Sure. I mean, if you compare the United States with other areas, I would say that homelessness certainly is more prevalent here. Um, it, it seems like, um, it, particularly in places where uh, housing markets and job markets are really, really high, the prices are really uh, high in those areas. Um, a lot of our metropolitan areas obviously are that way. Um, and it really comes down to the lack of affordable housing. I think a lot of other countries have gotten ahead of us a little bit uh, in terms of homelessness because they've really prioritized. They prioritized affordable housing for people and making sure that people have access to services, um, anything from healthcare to behavioral health care to, you know, again, just affordable housing. Um, they've tried to make it a lot more reasonable for people who are homeless. Um, it varies across our country, though. Um, there are lots of places that are doing really, really well with their homeless population. Um, in Dallas, somebody asked me this question the other the other day, how Dallas compared with other cities of our same size and things like that. And I think we're pretty much in the middle. I, I, I would say we're not the best at solving homelessness, but we're not the worst at it either. Um, our numbers tend to be somewhere in the middle when you look across populations and things like that. Um, so it's really, it comes down to that, but ultimately it's really about affordable housing. And the more, the more the country moves away from making uh, housing affordable for our population or any population that we have in the country, the more homelessness is going to continue to stay around. And I think that's the really big issue that, that keeps popping up is it's that affordable, affordability. I'd I just add in there, especially, yeah, especially since you're a historian, I think it's incredibly important to remind people this is not the way it's always been. Um, I happened to go to college in um, St. Louis and um as I was starting, they had just published a paper from the sociology department about the um, unforeseen effect of shutting down boarding houses within the city limits of St. Louis. And this was back in the 70s and 80s. And as you started getting rid of those boarding houses by zoning them out, by requiring private bathrooms or minimum number of square feet, um, there was a population that lived there that up until that time had always taken care of themselves. They were not necessarily wealthy. They may not have had a whole lot of options, but they were always able to have a place to stay. Um, as we, um, as a country, the a big we wanted to um, stop the erosion of our inner cities, we started to do a lot of things that actually accelerated homelessness. Um, we also, as a country, have not invested in any way, shape, or form the way that we could have or maybe should have um, in the past uh, 30 to 40 years. I mean, pretty much all of my adult life and, and before. Um, when I do speeches to people and about affordable housing, um, sometimes I'll ask them, in which administration was the last public housing built? And I believe that was the Johnson administration. So since then, um, housing authorities can replace their units, but they cannot expand the number of units that they own. 
So, Don, uh, thanks for putting that in this historical perspective. And um, I think it's, it's, you know, the bringing it to housing is really crucial. And I, I want to spend some time with that as we as we go along, um, because housing has been on everyone's mind in within the pandemic. Anyway, we've all been in the house. And one of these issues that comes up, well, everybody should needs to go home and stay home during the pandemic. That's really truly underlines the problem that you're that you're bringing forward. Let me ask you um, before we go to that, Don, though, what can a person who finds themselves homeless in America today reasonably reasonably expect? I know it probably varies across communities, but what can they reasonably reasonably expect to find in terms of services? So aside from a home, what else can they find? Most people who become homeless will actually self-resolve. They will not end up at any of our shelters. They will not end up in any of our programs. And quite frankly, they don't need us. And, you know, we're here, um, but we're, we're the, the last resort. Most people who find themselves homeless um, will have someone who will take them in until they can figure it out. Most people have somebody in their circle, um, whether it's couch surfing over a number of friends, family, and acquaintances for several months, or waiting until your next paycheck comes in and you're able to go back um, and get your own place eventually, most people will figure it out on, on their own. And as we think about um, the effects of the you know, economic fallout with the pandemic, it's really important to remember that. And I think one thing that we as a homeless or housing crisis system, system of care have not been particularly good at is how do we support people reconfiguring their families in that way? If it is best for a family to move into a multi-generational situation or multiple adults plus kids in the household, how do we make that something we are able to help support and make it sustainable for them? So when you say a multi-generational kind of situation, we're operating with the idea that housed people in America are living with two parents and children and, and they're in their own home. And you're describing awakening ourselves to other possibilities where there can be funding or some intervention that allows people to reconfigure. Absolutely. Some of the most interesting work that's happening in um, youth and young adult homelessness out in the extraordinarily high rent district of San Francisco is empty nesters have worked with um, youth service providers and offered the, the empty bedrooms for a certain amount of time. Um, they have the space, they have the real estate in a tight, tight real estate market, and they're able to do it. Um, in a, a program that my agency administers for the VA, um, the veteran is allowed to tell us who they consider their household, right? Like they, they don't have to prove a marriage or a biological connection, but who is their household and that's who we work with to get back into housing. So there's, again, kind of like um, I said, you know, homelessness has not always been this way. It used to be a, very common in the United States to live with or very near the rest of your family and support each other in that mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're seeing the same thing, Scott, in Dallas in particular with the uh, 
uh, Latinx community. Um, we, we, when I first got here, I realized that there was a large, obviously Latinx community here. And one of the things that we noticed is that they are underrepresented when you look at the total population in the homeless population. And we started talking with some of the, um, our friends and neighbors in that community, in the Hispanic community. And what they said is exactly what Don is talking about is they're, they're, you know, they're okay with living with grandparents there or having aunts and uncles and cousins come live with them and, and make sure that they have a place to stay. It's really a very cultural um, phenomenon that's going on. That's helping them, um, you know, stem some of the homelessness that could be going on in their, in their community because of the lack of affordable housing. But it's, it's it seems to be more uh, cultural for them that that allows this um, kind of uh, reconfiguring, if you will, to to naturally happen in the community. So we're we're very thankful of that for sure. Um, but yeah, like Don said, it, it really comes down to reconfiguring. And I think one of the thing about the resources or the services that are available, we have a lot of services, and by a lot I mean different kinds of services that are available to homeless individuals in the cities and um, particularly in metropolitan areas, you see a lot of different types of services. The problem I think we keep running into though, is that we generally don't have enough of the services and we don't, we don't decide that we're going to try to build up those services until the problem has already grown too much. So we wait until we get a thousand people who need substance abuse treatment and then realize we only have 500 beds and then we start to build the, that thousand. Well, well, we're already 500 behind. And so we're not ever going to be able to catch up that way. We've got to get ahead of it. We've got to think, you know, long-term and we've got to think proactively rather than reactively to what we're trying to do with homelessness. Otherwise we just keep getting further and further behind. I think last year, I think I saw a statistic that in California, or in Los, maybe it was even just Los Angeles County, they had housed someone somewhere in the neighborhood of like 51,000 people and their homeless numbers went up. I mean, it was just, it was ridiculous. The number of homeless people that are becoming homeless, the new homeless population that, that is growing out there because of the lack of affordable housing. But you very effectively just described the emergency management and disaster preparedness situation in America, too, which is that it's always sort of fighting the last Katrina or the last Hurricane Maria or earthquake, whatever it may be. Um, that, the answer for that to me is pretty clear, which is that um, elected leadership finds very little electoral advantage in running as a candidate, the candidate of emergency preparedness, because if it works well, you never really know it worked. And so they don't get the kind of credit that they would like to at the ballot box. Am I describing a similar situation with, with homelessness? And what are the, impe what are the Im impediments to getting ahead of this problem and building necessary infrastructure to deal with it? Dawn? Um, building housing is expensive and there is no way around it. It's not a sock drive at church. It's not a canned food drive with the Boy Scouts. Um, to to build a house affordable housing costs money and you have to have a long-term plan one community that has done this especially well is Cleveland Ohio um, I believe they have 
um, built or developed between 50 and 200 uh, permanent supportive housing units every year, year in, year out for over a decade. So it, it, it is an investment that that community has decided, has figured out how to make. And for some reason there, it resonates with their, their county and city electeds and population. I can say in Jacksonville, where I live, we do not have that type of um, city, county, or state support to, to have that consistent investment. So every metropolitan area would know if they do it well, they can access that, that money and be able to house the most vulnerable of our of our citizens. Yeah, it definitely what takes that long-term, it definitely takes that long-term planning and really looking ahead at at what we're trying to do, and like you said, it, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, politicians often don't spend a lot of time, you know, being politicians. They don't have a lot of time to be able to think about ten years from now or twenty years from now. They're thinking about this year or next year, trying to get reelected or trying to make sure that they're meeting the needs of their constituents in the moment. But if you don't plan long term and you don't plan ahead for it, then all you're doing is waiting for a disaster to happen and then trying to clean it up afterwards. And it's so much more difficult to be able to do it that way. And, you know, to echo what Don said, affordable housing is expensive, but the reality is homelessness is more expensive. It's more expensive for us to keep people homeless and use up all of the other uh, city, state, and county resources that we have, like the jails or the mental health uh, facilities or the emergency rooms or things like that. It's way more expensive to do that. And if people would just start to understand that if we do a little bit of investing now and continuous investing, it'll be so much, we'll get so much more out of it in the long run. people here listening to COVID calls and my discussion today of homelessness and the pandemic with Carl Falconer and Don Gilman. So we've got a great base um, to work with here. I think you really uh, helped us understand kind of the nuances of the problem going into the pandemic. Now let's talk about um, how it's been complicated over the last few months. Carl, you used a phrase when we were um, talking about doing this program, used this phrase, how does somebody go home um, how does somebody without a home, sorry, how does somebody without a home stay home during a pandemic? Um, you have an answer for that? I mean, this is, a, yeah. you know, I hadn't thought of it that way until you put it like that. It's really striking. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the thing that struck me and the thing that made me really think about that and think about that phrase is when you look at the pandemic, particularly when it first started, uh, CDC guidance, HUD guidance, federal guidance, local guidance, all of the, everything that was being touted as guidance for how we slow or stop the pandemic had to do with housing. It had to do with being home. It had to do with staying home, staying away from people, and being able to access all of your resources and everything that you have inside your home. In fact, one of the things that I've noticed through the pandemic as well, and I think this really speaks to the 
to the um, situation that we're in is that it, all of the commercials, and I don't want to say all of the commercials, a lot of the commercials, though, are really touting how much more valuable home is to us as individuals now through this pandemic. And every time I see one of those, I think to myself, but some people don't have homes. Are we starting to get this? Are we starting to understand this now? That if you don't have a home, you don't get you don't get to be safe. You don't get to be away from people. And you know, but I think I think the other thing is that we've really started to understand during this pandemic that housing is so much more than four walls. Housing is healthcare. Housing is behavioral health care. Housing is social distancing. Housing is employment for people. Housing is education for people. I mean, that's what home is. And it's so much more than just four walls for people. And I'm hoping that the community is starting to understand this through the pandemic. But honestly, how do you how do you go home if you are homeless? You have to access other resources. You have to access other places. You've got to find emergency shelters. We, Like I said, here in Dallas, we opened our convention center because we did not have enough emergency shelter beds to be able to take care of the people. We've opened hotels for uh, people to stay in. And so what you have to do is you have to be creative. You have to find ways to make a home for people who normally would not have that Don, I was reading, um, you know, to this problem of that Carl's been talking about reading, particularly early on in the pandemic, there were a lot of news stories reporting the the, the first case of COVID-19 in a homeless shelter. This was a pretty common headline that I was seeing like in March. And the general um, gist of these stories was that those people had to leave those shelters. So this even further complicates and maybe yeah. it's evolved. Maybe um, the situation's gotten better since then. But I mean, that's even further complicated. If you go to the place which is your temporary home, and then you're not welcome there if you're sick. It um, it gets very complicated very fast. In Florida, shelters are treated the same way as uh, nursing homes or any other congregate living facility. So if there is um, an outbreak or a positive case. In that shelter, um, the health department immediately does contact tracing. Um, and one of the first ones we had at one of our larger missions, um, that was trying to find and administer 60 tests, right? At, at a point where, you know, the, as the numbers are going up, it gets harder and harder to get those test results back quickly. Um, most of our shelters have depopulated somewhat, meaning they are they have fewer people in that shelter. Some people are going or being allowed or welcomed back in to um, friends or family. Um, others, like Carl said, um, most communities are doing some sort of, we're now calling it non-congregate shelter. That euphemism means we're putting people in hotel and motel rooms. Um, right. That is very helpful, a helpful first step, especially for people that were moving directly off the streets with a lot of underlying medical conditions, because then they have control, right? They can control how hot or how cold it is in the room. They're not on a schedule for meals. Um, we try to put them in places that at least have like a little mini fridge and a microwave so they, they can choose more choice which um, we are hopeful, as Carl said, a lot of this federal funding is about to really scale up 
that that allows us to accelerate people moving into their own home out of because a hotel is is not a home it's it's a temporary resting place I'm thinking of a image I saw it must have been maybe from Las Vegas I think it was somewhere in Nevada where they had taken a parking lot and had basically and I and I wanted to ask you about this because that seemed to me like an impossible I have mixed feelings about it because on one hand I thought, well, this is an impossible um, sort of impossibly accurate statement of, of the haves and have nots in America. On the other hand, I don't know the full story of what policymakers are fa were facing there in that situation. Maybe that was seen as somehow one of these innovative responses. Do you know the picture I'm talking about? Or maybe there's similar oh, pictures yeah. from other cities. Yeah. yeah, I think I remember seeing it as well. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't necessarily call that so, a solution. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> okay. didn't all right, so like I'm not crazy. I was all right. It didn't look like a solution yeah. to most of our people, even the ones who were sleeping outside uh, during the pandemic didn't necessarily see that as a solution. Um, the hotels certainly seemed to be a whole lot better option for them, um, at least in the for a temporary solution until we can get them moved into housing. But yeah, that didn't that didn't really look it didn't resonate with us as something that we were trying to replicate. That's for sure. Yeah, even with people who are living outside who are in encampments, or uh, there, there's actually guidance that we're able to give them through the outreach teams, meaning what what can they do to stay safe? Um, and, and moving a bunch of people into fairly tight quarters, um, much many more people than would normally be in an encampment and fairly close um, did not seem like it had been well thought out. I am, I'm not aware of, of what the unsheltered numbers were in that community. Um, in ours, um, you know, there are people who are, who are out, who would like a tent, who would like some, some things that if we could be able to provide it for everybody. Um, and, and that's, that had, to me, looking at that picture seems like they had, had given up on the, um, on what they what other options they had, especially in a city that had shut down um, all tourism at that time. So all the hotels behind that picture, my understanding is they were empty. Okay, that's what I thought I was looking at, but I wanted to talk to a couple experts before I before I came to that conclusion. I want to um, ask you both questions since you both worked in Florida and Carl, you work in Dallas now. These are not states or cities that don't know disaster of a more ordinary type, hurricanes, severe weather of all different types. Um, how is the pandemic different, if it is, from the kinds of problems that you face in doing your work? Um, how is the pandemic different from dealing with a hurricane or a severe storm cluster or a heat wave or some other kinds of things? Or is there any difference at all? Yeah, I think um, one of the advantages, I guess, or, or one of the good things that that has come out of the pandemic or one of the things that I share with the community is that most of our providers, most of the people who are providing the direct homeless service or services to homeless individuals are, are equipped for disasters all the time. This is just kind of a normal you know, Monday and Tuesday that happens for them. They they see disasters, they see fires, they see floods. They We have hurricanes, we have, you know, all kinds of other 
weather uh, events in particular and disasters that happen. So it really, you know, and also contagious diseases, honestly, which I think is one of the biggest reasons why you have not seen a huge spike in a lot of homeless populations across the country is because the providers deal with contagious diseases all the time. They deal with tuberculosis. They deal with the flu. They deal with all these all these things. And so we have we had a lot of the protocols in place that we needed for the COVID-19. Now, the difference, honestly, is the length of time, really. I mean, it's it's how long this is lasting and how long it's staying around. Um, that's a huge difference, because like you said, with a hurricane, it might last a week, it might last two weeks, you might be able to get people in and get people moved back out or get them back to some semblance of what their life was previously. But with this lasting months and months and who knows how long it's going to last, that's something that's just kind of one of those things that just kind of keeps wearing on you. And particularly like Don was talking about, when you start, when your staff starts getting affected by it, when, you know, when you start to see the numbers go up and, and also, honestly, the limiting of the other facilities within your city or state. So the fact that the driver's license bureaus are closed, the fact that libraries are closed, the fact that, um, you know, Social Security offices are closed, these all hamper us from doing the work that we normally do to get people housed. Because you, it's very, very difficult to move somebody into housing if I they see. don't have ID if they don't have a birth certificate, if they don't have a social security card and all those offices have been closed and they've gone to virtual or making appointments. And sometimes it might take us a month to get somebody in to an appointment somewhere. So that's, those are some of the differences I think with this kind of pandemic is it's closed down a lot more regularly functioning um, facilities that we would be able to have access to as homeless service providers. The other important thing to remember is usually if a hurricane comes through, our emergency hurricane shelters are in our schools, right? So um, even when in Florida they shut schools down at the end of the last school year, they were all still serving breakfast and lunch. So there were still children and teachers and people coming in and out of a lot of those schools. So it was not a place where you could then turn it into a um, overflow shelter for homeless providers or some of those other things. Um, I think we're going to run into that same occurrence uh, um, again in, in this year, right? You know, I live in Florida. I've been watching the Caribbean. Um, and when the first it's, you know, here it's never if the hurricane is going to hit, it's when and where, right? So I think on the, state side, they, it, it was tempting to treat it like a hurricane, as Carl said. You know, when the hurricane comes in, you watch the weather pattern, you get the prediction, and then it crosses over, and then it goes back out to sea, and you do the cleanup piece. Um, this is like crisis fatigue, because you're constantly watching the wave come in, you clean up after that wave, and then the next wave comes in. I mean, we had the added thing of like, oh, and then the RNC is going to come here and we have all these people in hotel and do we have to move people out of hotel and do we have to depopulate right, shelters? Right. And, and then that didn't happen. So it's kind of like this big, and now we're like, oh, and now we got to, the next thing happens again. Yeah. 
I think the other thing about uh, normal disasters, if you want to call them that, normal disasters, hurricanes or floods or things like that, is if you think about it intuitively, we try to push people to congregate settings. Well, mm-hmm. this kind of a disaster, we're actually trying to keep people out of congregate settings and move people away from that. So it really kind of changes the dynamic of what you're trying to do here. You can't, you know, put, take a thousand people like, like Don said and put them at a school. That would not work with this kind of a pandemic. It, you're trying to do the exact opposite, which is why we're trying to utilize the hotels that have been empty now and also try to move people into housing because we think that obviously that would be the easiest and best way to try and keep people separate and keep people healthy during the entire pandemic. I think like Carl had mentioned earlier in the homeless um, service providing community, we're very used to communicable diseases, but those diseases are all well-known, well-studied. We know how they infect people. We know what the side effects are. We know how long it'll take is uh, what's the treatment protocol, all those things. Do you want HEPA filters or not? Does that make a difference? Is it airborne? Is it not? Um, Is it, you know, water? But all of those things, especially at the very beginning, even now we're learning how little we know about this virus and what, what happens as more and more people get it and what does that mean? And I think that also has people on edge. Um, I can't remember if it was at the top of the hour right before uh, we went on. You said, you know, what is what is this revealing that that has been obscured before? And I think what it revealed is um, as humans, we have always been very susceptible to viruses and pandemics and and other illnesses. But with the advent of modern hygiene and homes. Um, we have been able to move it out of our sight, at least in most developed countries. So all of a sudden, this is one that's going to affect or potentially affect everyone, right? Like Jacksonville had the largest out- tuberculosis outbreak in the country in 2014, mm-hmm. right? But it yeah. was almost exclusively within the homeless community. Yeah. So it's it's a really good point you make there too about um, and sometimes we forget this is called the novel coronavirus. Uh, I had an epidemiologist on who explained very effectively that there were five big questions as far as he was concerned, still of like major epidemiological importance that are not resolved yet. And of course, we're just in the early stages of the of the vaccine, and it speaks also, I think, to to your point, Don, and also to your point, Carl, about the the time frame that maybe we're not like emergency management is usually not geared for longer term events. Um, now, social services like homelessness services, I would think, are geared for longer term events, but that um, presupposes that the funding is there for the longer term. Can you take us a little bit in into that? Do our elected officials um, have the wherewithal to understand this in the length of time necessary to keep providing the services that people are going to need? Well, 
I think we have started to see some funding coming from the federal government, which is good. I think the breadth of the pandemic for, uh, you know, affecting the entire community has helped our, our homeless service providers and our homeless uh, individuals. Because normally, if it was like Don said, if it was only affecting the homeless population, I think there would be very little concern about adding more uh, economics or adding more resources to it. You, you'd probably you'd probably try and throw enough at it to solve the problem in the moment and then move on from it. But the reality is that it's affecting everyone in our community has really kind of elevated that need for resources. and. They have started providing some resources now at the federal level. Um, we think we're going to get more resources than we ever have had, honestly, in our communities. And now is an opportunity that we're seeing that we might be able to actually solve some longer-term solutions um, or longer-term problems that we have here with some of the resources that we're getting. And, in fact, like I said, really kind of focus on that housing particularly as healthcare in this kind of a pandemic is really trying to get people housed that way and making sure that everyone is staying safe. But it really takes a lot of resources. And as you can see, there's already some pushback between the Senate and the House and the new Heroes Act bill and, you know, things like that. And so I think we're already starting to get to that point where the politicians are starting to question how much more money are we going to put in to this situation. I think um, homelessness, like the pandemic, this is a solvable problem, but it is not a quick and easy fix. Um, homelessness, there is one cure for homelessness, and that's a home, right? If you have a home, if you have a place to live, you are you are housed. Um, there will be a cure or treatments for this virus eventually, but we don't know when. Um, and that is something we're all going to need to work with. I think um, as community members, one of the most important things we can advocate for is every bit of money that we invest in our fellow citizens is just that. It is an investment. If we are able to keep people at a living wage because they're currently unemployed, that's a good thing. That means a kid has a home. They're not worried where they're going to sleep. Um, if we're able to ensure, ensure food security, that means um, our elders don't have to worry about where their next meal is coming from. These are good things to invest in in all of our communities throughout the country. And that is the messaging I would like to see us do. Every person that we keep in their home, that is a win on our, for, as far as we're concerned, because nobody needs or should have to ever show up in a homeless shelter. Again, we're the, we're the end of the road when everything else, you've gone through everything else. We would prefer everybody to stay, as we put it, upstream from us. Yeah, I think the I think the build on that as well is just one other thing is 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 I think the pandemic is really showing us how connected we all are. So spending a dollar on an individual who's homeless is spending a dollar on all of the other people in the community as well. It's not just spending it on that subpopulation. We're all connected together, and this pandemic, I think more than anything, is showing us that is we can't assume that. 
because we're in good standing. And by we, I mean us as individuals are in good standing or we have everything that we need, that we're going to be safe in our community if everybody doesn't have what they need. It's really showing how valuable it is to make sure that everybody in your community has the at least the basic resources to be able to live their life comfortably. I think we're also seeing that in the race equity uh, piece that is going through. Um, you know, it as as we have more cameras and we see what happens, we realize it could it could be my son, right? It could be my neighbor, uh, regardless of their skin tone. So I I think all of this is kind of laying bare that while we all have, you know, our five-year plan or goals or what we want to do, um, mm. things can get upended. And and as Carl said, we're all connected. And there's people, when something upends our lives, at least in my life, there's always been people that have helped me through it. And I think that is, is mm. critical in this. And I think um, when you work with persons who, who have – very little it is always astonishing how much they want to give back i mean hmm. very very consistently um they they don't want to just get out they want to make sure everybody they know also gets up and out want to remind people you're listening to COVID calls and you can still get a, a question in if you want to on YouTube live or up on Twitter at US of Disaster. I'm talking to Carl Falconer and Don Gilman about homelessness and they both just said something that really I uh, think we should linger on for a second and it's an excellent reminder about this connection um, that people are connected in this time. I guess it depends on the time of day that you ask me or the day of the week how I've felt about that. That's why I appreciate your your reminder, because there's so many forces right now pushing us apart. Some of them are predictable and even like democracy itself. Like it's a system built to foment an argument, you know, and then we have an election and we move on from there. But we seem to be in extraordinarily hateful political times. So we pushed further apart. This idea of distancing, even the wearing of the mask. There's so many things that do seem to be interposing themselves between people. But you've both just made a strong case, um, not only for the power of connection, but also just the, the political reality of the need for connection at this time. I, I want to ask um, a question connected with that. You both seems like you really came into your own in this work right about the time of the 2008 fiscal crisis. So you were really getting your education in this world oh, yes. of homelessness right then. And so that's the most recent time in American history in which you had large numbers of people, correct me if I'm wrong, we had large numbers of people who took certain things for granted and then, Don, as you said, everything was upended on mm -hmm. them. I, I do wish that had had a more revolutionary effect on the way Americans view precarity in the economic system. What are you worried about right now? Are, are we about to see a, a, a greater number of people enter into the homelessness services, uh, into the, that world of need? Or are, are you 
that worried about it because the pandemic has already sort of created that need, like help ground us a little bit about what we're looking at as we go into September and October with this. So the beauty and the curse of working in the homeless community is you understand there are many levels of crisis, right? There are many. So if you and your family have a sudden economic loss and you're worried, that is a crisis in your family. But you know what? You're, you're probably going to be okay. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I have been there in my family where that has happened to us. It's, it's painful. It's hard. It's uncertain. Um, many people in our country are going to have a crisis. Very few will become homeless. Um, nationally, even in the Great Recession, we're talking maybe 3%, right? Which, But 3% of a big country is still a lot of people. So I'm not trying to minimize that. But, um, you know, and I, I'm, I'm making light of this deliberately, but not deliberately. Like, we're not dealing with the zombie apocalypse, right? Like, this is... This is a virus and this is bad and people have already died and and it's incredibly for those families it is devastating and how do we support them just like in that range of who gets affected there are people who've been on the streets for a very long time and I would put forward with the funding that's coming through this is their time to take care of them because we need to keep them healthy and out of our hospitals for them to continue functioning. Yeah, I, th I thought I thought we were going to be on opposite ends on this one, Don, but you and I are thinking exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a lot of my colleagues and a lot of people in the news and a lot of researchers are predicting there's going to be a lot more homelessness. I've seen, you know, anywhere from 45 to 55 percent increases. But I've been in this field a long time. Like I said, 1994 is when I started. So I've been in, you know, 20, what is that, 30 years almost, I guess. Um, and the reality is, is that we generally just don't see that in, in the homeless field. And I think the reason is because of how good we are at providing the services. I mean, we have just become so efficient at using every dollar that we have and collaborating together so well that it, no matter what comes up, whether it's a hurricane or a flood or anything that comes up, we band together, we multiply our resources, we make sure that we make do with everything that we have, we put everything into it, and we, we, make, we take advantage of it, which is why, like Don said, I think we have a real opportunity this time. And I guess, what, was it Winston Churchill who said, you know, never let a good disaster go to waste or something of that nature. And the reality is, is this is a time when we're putting resources into our services that can help people. And we're, we're planning to be able to help those people who, like Don said, have been out on the streets for 20 years. Yes, there will be people who lose their jobs and there are people who have lost their jobs. And yes, there are some people who will lose their housing or be evicted from housing. But the reality is, is like Don said, in most cases, they have other support networks that they'll lean on. They'll go stay with friends. They'll go stay with family. They'll tap into their 401k. They'll, you know, they'll they'll have resources and availability. But now we have an opportunity as a as a 
community as a nation to be able to do what we should have been doing for our our really, really vulnerable citizens all this time. And so we're really trying to take advantage of that and trying to make sure that we move people in. And I agree with Don. I I don't think that we're going to see a huge spike in homelessness overall because of the systems we have in place, mm. the, the, the um, support systems, the service nets that we have and the resources we have, and our ability to use those as effectively as we have over time. I think we've been preparing for this our entire careers, and now is just an opportunity when when we don't get to say anymore, hey, there weren't any resources. Oh, now you got resources. We've been waiting. We've been waiting a long time, and now it's our opportunity to take advantage of it. So, yeah. I have so many thoughts of what you both just said. I mean, in, in, in one sense, it's, um, you know, the this feeling that the disaster because it provokes so commonly through our news media and just people's own psychology of risk, um, the sense that the, the world is going to be remade right now somehow. And, and you're both saying maybe, but in fact, what's going to happen is it's the world is already made and we know what that world of homelessness looks like. And we hope there's resources that help to deal with that. There's a continuity there um, that maybe doesn't make headlines but it also shows how good you are at what you do in thinking strategically and, and politically. Um, I think that's an important point and probably has real resonance with anti-racism efforts, um, disaster preparedness efforts across the board. People know, uh, I mean, geographers know where the hazards are. You know, people know where the, where the risks are. They're usually of long standing, not of immediate making. Having said that, I, I want to just stay with this for a second. I mean, for a couple of particular areas that I've been thinking about, one is with mental health. That will there be, because of the nature of this disaster and the length of time it's going to last, is it possible that you will see um, people entering the homelessness system because of mental health crises that we haven't seen before? Are there, there's something particular about this disaster that's causing stress because of the length of it. And no, the other, you're not, you're not no, seeing it. No, the reality is, is that the mental illness in our community, the, the majority of the people that are mentally ill in our nation are housed. And, and that's always how, that always has been the case. And that always will be the case. It's a very, very small portion of mental ill, of the uh, mentally ill population that actually becomes homeless. Now, when they do, it can be very severe, and we certainly have to move them into housing and really pour a lot of resources into into their situations. But the reality is that a majority of people with mental illness will will be okay. They'll they'll be housed just like they were before the pandemic, just like they are during the pandemic, and just like they will be after the pandemic. Again, it goes back to what Don had talked about: the real issue and the real cause of homelessness is a lack of a support network. And most of the people in our country, you know, through through, you know, obviously good economic times and and a lot of of really good advantages that we have in our country will be okay because they have support networks. They have people in place. They have things and resources in place that will carry them through even this long pandemic. And that includes federal stimulus 
money and, you know, things like that. I mean, all of those things are resources that will carry them through it. Um, it's just going to be a few people who are going to lose that safety net because of this pandemic. And we'll be okay. We'll handle that because we have handled it. We know how. We know what to do. We'll get more resources and, and we'll move those people back in house. So, and I'll take a pop at the next straw man. The vast majority of people who abuse drugs and alcohol are housed. They're functional alcoholics. They hide it, they do whatever, or they manage to hang on and they still earn an income and, and do it. So, um, is substance use going up during the pandemic? Probably. Um, is it to a point where people are going to lose their housing? Probably not in, in any kind of greater numbers than happens on, you know, any given year. Um, mm -hmm. So it, are, are there going to be more people that seek mental health professionals for anxiety or something from the pandemic? I hope they do. I mean, if you're feeling it, you absolutely should reach out. And you should reach out as, as often or as early as you can. They're doing amazing things with telehealth and that and um, with support for people who are trying to abate their, their substance use. So we're already creating ways to, to work with people, even in this distancing environment. There are, are some people in the mental health and substance use community who actually hope we keep the telehealth up because, you know, uh, if you've got a 37 county territory, um, doing a secured um, telehealth connection is you can quadruple or tenfold the number of people that you're able to meet with and, and treat. Yeah, very good. Very similar to people working in their homes now. We're starting to understand a lot of businesses are starting to look and say, you know, maybe we don't really have to have as much office space as we thought we had to have before. It's the same with the homeless service system as well. We're really adapting to it. We're starting to do more virtual, uh, you know, uh, telehealth type things or virtual meetings to be able to provide services to people. So, I mean, we're, we're all kind of adapting to it overall. And I think, like Don said, if, you know, whatever resources people were going to access prior to the pandemic, they're accessing them now, maybe in a different way, but they're still able to access them and they're still be able to get, they're still being able to get to those resources. Yeah. The smartest thing I did in our, um, you know, for our service network was um, at the very beginning, I acquired five laptop or four five tablets right one for each of our shelters and for our federally qualified health care clinic well you know what i got three more because we're going to have people in three different hotels that so now we have access i mean that's what carl had talked about earlier is it is showing a lack of access that people have if they don't have a home and resources to have some sort of um, connectivity on that level um, but we've also been working with other providers. You know, you can do a lot by just the regular old telephone. Um, that That's still a very viable right. option. You know, you can pick up the phone and call somebody and have a conversation with them. You know, yeah. it doesn't always have, I mean, it's right. nice to see both of you and have this <laughs> I have picked up the phone and called him. I texted him when I had a question yeah. and I had a quick question and, you know, we, 
for Generation Z listeners, you can just email me and I'll explain uh, what telephony is. Uh, we'll, we'll have that as a separate separate conversation. No, I'm making light of it, but exactly right. And again, showing the sort of resourcefulness that people are finding in this in this moment. This has been an illuminating conversation. I and we're we're up on time. I want to just get one. I guess a quick question to each of you. Um, how can people support your work, Don? How can people best support either the sort of more general world field that you're in or your or you specifically and what you do? What's the best way for us to support at this time? All right, I'm gonna start on the national level. If you go to the National Alliance to End Homelessness on their advocacy page, they have the easiest federal advocacy ever. Um, click on it. All you have to do is put in your zip code. They will tell you who your congressmen and sen senators are, and they have a message that um, is pre-made. You can choose to customize it, but it is for the next round of CARES Act. Um, Carl and I uh, both run nonprofits. I'm sure he has a donate now button just as I do on my webpage. Um, I run an agency called Changing Homelessness. And we're cleverly at changinghomelessness.org. Um, so if you want to support that agency directly, um, we would love to connect with you that way. I will give you one other way. If you go to our webpage, um, we are going to have a breakfast, a virtual coffee. It used to be an annual breakfast. That's not happening this year. Um, but we will have local, state, regional, national panel um, if you want to learn more about this topic. Yeah, and I'll I'll piggyback on that a little bit um, for the state and for state, county, and local officials. You really need to reach out to those local officials as well. Some of the funding that's coming from the federal government is being decided uh, is being decided by your local uh, government officials how that money is being spent. And so you need to talk to them about affordable housing and really getting people back into housing and really trying to create some long-term solutions, not just emergency shelters for people or doing or providing maybe even some prevention dollars that may not um, end homelessness for people. It's really about trying to get people housed again. And you need to talk with your local officials about spending the dollars that way. Um, it won't do us any good if all of that money comes down and we just send it right back out the door and, and nobody gets housed because of it. It's really, you know, the local level, they're making a lot of decisions now. So that's one way definitely to support us during this. Um, and again, the other is to is to make sure that people are working together. So if you're going to donate to providers, if you're going to donate to any uh, agencies, make sure that they're working as part of your continuums of care. Make sure they're working with the other providers. Ask those questions. Really kind of, you know, get into in depth with them about exactly what they're going to do with the dollars. And it should be having an expounding effect. It should be having a multiplying effect using it with other um, agencies instead of just by themselves or handing sandwiches out of the back of their car, which is perfectly fine. But I have yet to see someone get housed when after you've given them a sandwich, just by giving them a sandwich. It really it's very difficult um, in that circumstance. And what we want is we want people housed. And, of course, it's uh, mdhadallas.org is our website, and you can certainly go there and give us a donation if you, if you feel compelled to do so. Can I just add one thing to what Carl said? And this comes up a lot in the nonprofit world. If they tell you they're going to hire more people, 
you should give them more money, quite frankly, because that that's what Carl and I are talking about. Like it is the one thing that I am most concerned about with the federal dollars coming down is how do we, and then our agencies that are going to do the direct service, how do we, there are people out of work, but how, can we can we offer them enough money and train them up fast enough that they can help us do this work? Because it yeah. is work. Yeah, capacity is definitely the biggest issue that we're going to be dealing with, particularly over the next few months while do- while these federal dollars come out. Is it's capacity again? We have not been used to dealing with this amount of money at one given time, and so capacity is a really big issue. Carl Falconer and Don Gilman, this has been an hour that has given me some hope. Uh, I really appreciate the conversation, and I think we'll I know how busy you are. We'll try to get further down the calendar, we'll try to get you back, and, and maybe we can get a report from you how well this has gone, this capacity building, as we, as we go into the fall. And I hope things turn the corner in both of your states. I want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID Calls, and COVID Calls is on Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. You can catch it right here on YouTube Live or on Periscope or on Facebook Live. And tomorrow I have David Brick, uh, one of the co-founders of the Headlong Dance Theater. We're going to talk about choreography and dance and creativity as a way to make sense of the pandemic. So please do join us for that. Don and Carl, thanks again. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Okay, stay healthy, everybody. See you tomorrow. Bye.